Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you today. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there's one in the seat in front of you, and that's on page 225. Uh, today marks the halfway point in our Life With, Life Without series as we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel together. And all throughout this book, what we've seen is this constant contrast between what it looks like to do life with God and to do life apart from God. And being that we're halfway this morning, I wanted to start our time together just by looking at a brief recap of what we've already seen in this story, of how we've already seen God at work in 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 begins, there was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. There's this man, Elkanah, two wives, and Hannah doesn't have any children. And we get to verse 6, and we're told why she has no children. Uh, it says, because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, rather than running from the Lord in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her hurt, in the midst of her disappointment, this is a woman who runs to the Lord and cries out to him for grace. She draws near to the Lord, and the first thing that we're told about Hannah is that she pours out her soul before the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says that the Lord remembered Hannah. Uh, not as though somehow God in his omniscience and his complete and perfect wisdom had somehow actually forgotten about her, but rather meaning that God at just the right time that he had predetermined and in response to Hannah crying out to him, decided to act on her behalf. And so in that moment, she conceives baby Samuel. Uh, we learn from this narrative that the Lord is not in a hurry. God's just not in a rush. He's at work in the whole situation, in the midst of the waiting, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of it all, a sovereign and good God is doing his work. He's fashioning Hannah into becoming the kind of woman she needs to be, to be the kind of mother she needs to be, so that Samuel can be the kind of man that he needs to be, so that God can continue to accomplish his sovereign and good purposes. Well, Hannah and her faithfulness is then immediately contrasted by the two sons of Eli. In chapter two, verse 12, these two young men are introduced as worthless men, and then it says, they did not know the Lord. Rather than serving the Lord as his priests and using their service to make much of God to the people, instead, they decide to use the Lord for their own personal gain. You see, life with God for Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons of Eli, was all about how they could use the Lord and how they could do life with God on their own terms, which really is not life with God at all. It's life with without God. 
And so they use the Lord's work for their own benefit. And so uh, the Lord rejects Hophni and Phinehas from being priests, from being leaders in the nation. And in chapter two, verse 30, we're reminded, uh, those who honor the Lord, the Lord honors. Those who despise the Lord are lightly esteemed. Uh, To put another way, the book of James says it this way. Uh, He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what we see here with these two sons of Eli that are rejecting the Lord, uh, we see that they are inviting the direct opposition of almighty God upon their own heads. And so Hophni and Phinehas loud wickedness in the midst of a world and a nation that is loud in their wickedness and yet all along there are these quiet whispers of a gracious and a tenacious God quietly doing his work and steering all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, Enter Samuel chapter 3 verse 1. Uh, We're told there, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. God raises up Samuel, this young boy at the time, and he begins his ministry by hearing from the Lord. Now just imagine this, this is Samuel's first week of work, and God speaks to him, and he says, hey, uh, for your first assignment, I know you're just getting used to where everything is, you're just meeting all of your other co-workers, but here's what I need you to do. Uh, I need you to go and tell your boss that God is going to kill him and his two sons because they had been faithless in their service to the Lord. Because Hophni and Phinehas had been blaspheming the Lord and because Eli failed to restrain them. And so Samuel in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord does exactly as the Lord asks him. And uh, verse 19 says, Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. First Samuel chapter four, uh, the Israelites go out to battle against the Philistines. We learn that in the course of battle, they lose 4,000 men. And so then they get this really bright idea, right? They devise this awesome plan. They say, hey, uh, what about the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord? This symbol, this box that represents the presence and the glory of God amongst his people. Uh, let's cart that sucker out onto the battlefield and let's use it as like a magic token so that God God has to do our bidding. And who should cart this thing out onto the battlefield? None other than Hophni and Phinehas, the two guys that had spent their lives using God for their own personal gain, are now leading the entire nation to follow in their footsteps and use God to accomplish their purposes, to bring about their own glory, and to secure their own safety. You don't even have to read the rest of the story to know how this one turns out, right? Uh, The Israelites lose in battle for those who despise the Lord shall be lightly esteemed. And so the symbol of God's presence and glory departs from Israel for a nation had determined to do life with God on their own terms, which is really life without the Lord. 
Now the Philistines begin to despise the Lord. What they do in the rest of this chapter is they bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the temple of their gods and in so doing, they're trying to demonstrate the superiority and the power that their own gods have over the God of Israel and yet God demonstrates with startling clarity that Israel's defeat does not signify his defeat, that he still rules and reigns supreme over all gods, over all nations, over all kings, and nothing can stand in his way. And so he makes their idols fall face down and dashes them to pieces. So the Philistines do the smartest thing they'd ever done, and they send the ark of the Lord back into Israel And we learn that Samuel is now full grown. And so he calls God's people to repent, to receive the grace of the Lord, and to direct their hearts back to the Lord. Now last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we saw two different scenes. Uh, The first scene was the horizontal, uh, and then we got to see the vertical of what was going on. God's people, we learned, were called to be unlike all the other nations, that they were to be distinct because their God went with them. And yet, they cry out for a king, and not just any king, but a king like the rest of the nations. They demand a king, which is just the horizontal fruit of what's going on in the vertical, and their rejection of the Lord. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is where we concluded last week. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and that our king may go out before us, and that our king might fight our battles." When Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his own city. Uh, This is where we've been so far in our Life with Life Without series, this contrast between what it looks like to walk faithfully with the Lord, what it looks like to do life faithfully with the Lord, and what it looks like to do life with God on our own terms or to completely reject the Lord and do life without him. Now, the next portion of our narrative where we're gonna be for our text today, uh, Samuel 9, 1 through 10, 16, uh, this whole part is kind of set up like one of those bad romantic comedies, right? Uh, there's like three different stories that are all being developed and they all don't really make sense at first, but then as the time goes on, uh, they begin to weave themselves all into one story. You've probably seen a thousand of those. You don't need to see any others, by the way. Uh, the first story, my wife is sad about that. The first story, uh, this is what was developed last week. The people and their leaders, they gathered together and they reject the Lord from being their king. They demand a king like the other nations who will go out for them and who will fight their battles for them. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 begins our second story. It says this. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, 
a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, I just need to say it because I know you're thinking it. This was a cruel joke from Pastor Doug to ask me to preach this text. (laughs) If you don't get it, okay. Thank you for your grace. Uh, The second story... (laughs) The second story in our text this morning, uh, it's, it's really interesting. It starts off the exact same way that 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 started, right? It says, now there was a man from blank, and then it goes on to tell us what the rest of the story is. I think the author here is purposely doing something. He's trying to set it up so that we can begin to see something unique about this story that's different than Samuel's story. Uh, We learn that Kish, Saul's father, is from the tribe of Benjamin. A little bit later in the narrative, we'll learn that he's actually from the town of Gibeah. Why is all of this important? Because the last time that we saw the tribe of Benjamin was in the town of Gibeah. It was back in Judges chapter 20. Now, you don't have to turn back there this morning, but remember, uh, we have in our hands the Old Testament and the New Testament all together in the Bible, Uh, but the Jewish people, they call it the Hebrew Bible. It's just the Old Testament, and it has a different arrangement of the books. And so rather than placing in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, the book of Ruth, they go straight from the book of Judges into the book of 1 Samuel. And so there's only like 10, 11 chapters between what happens in Judges 20 and what happens here now in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, What does happen there? Uh, We learn that it's one of the most horrific scenes throughout the entirety of Scripture and certainly during the period of the Judges. Uh, It's a scene that involves rape, murder, dismemberment, and civil war. Uh, God's people taking up arms against God's people and slaughtering them. Uh, We learn that 25,000 men of Benjamin are killed in this civil war, leaving only 600 men who escaped. Uh, No wives or children were left for any of these men and all the tribes of Israel had gotten together and said, because the tribe of Benjamin is such an abomination to the Lord, none of us are willing to share our daughters with them. They can't take them as wives. And so what they do is they actually go to these Canaanites and they kidnap 400 Canaanite virgins and offer them to the tribe of Benjamin for their wives. Already, just by introducing Kish and saying that he's a Benjaminite from the town of Gibeah, we can kind of see that something interesting is happening here. Let's look at the rest of the description of Saul and Kish. It says that they come from money. It says that Saul is handsome and he's tall. His look and his stature gave him a charismatic and a domineering presence. Like I have never walked into a room and people have been intimidated by my stature. (laughs) I know that's surprising, uh, but some of you guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And at least all of us do by experience. The big dude walks in the room and everyone's like, what's going on? Who's this guy? And what's he about to do? Uh, That was Saul. His presence filled the room. His presence commanded attention. Now remember, uh, back in chapter eight, the people had asked God, they had asked Samuel for a king like the nations. Pastor Doug noted last week, their request in asking for a king was not the issue. 
The problem with their request is that they were asking for a king like the nations and they wanted their king now. The name of Saul in Hebrew is actually Sha'al, which pretty much means the asked for one. Saul's name means the asked for one and God here is giving his people exactly what they asked for. A king like the nations, a king from the world, one who is rich, attractive, physically strong, a leader that even has Canaanite blood flowing through his veins. Let's look at the story. Verses three through 14. It says, Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not found there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So, now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Now formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Verse 11. Now as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to him, is the seer here? And they answered, he is, behold, he is just ahead of you, hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city and just as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Uh, this is the second story of our three, and it's somewhat fascinating, and it's somewhat comedic. Like, the stories of many great leaders begin with a grand tale of their heroism, and it becomes abundantly clear to all who know the story that this person is the one who should be in charge, and this is the guy who should lead us, not so with Saul, uh, his heroic upcoming is a search for donkeys. And Saul's not even the hero in the story, right? Uh, in chapter nine, verse five, the servant is the one who pushes them on. Saul's ready to give up. But the servant says, no, let's keep going. The servant's the one who comes up with the silver to give to the seer. He's the one who comes up with the idea. And so then, they enter into the city and God's sovereign work is clearly seen in all of it. Uh, they walk in and they ask these women who just happened to be there, hey, is Samuel here? And they said, hey, uh, 
Surprisingly so, he just happened to show up at the city. It's like impeccable timing or like there's a sovereign hand of God working behind all of it. And then they say, well, will we be able to talk to him? And they said, well, he just entered the city and here's how you can go and meet with him. And so coincidentally, as soon as Saul and his servant walk in, Samuel happens to be walking out towards them. This first story, a search for donkeys, the heroic upcoming of Saul. Now we're gonna look at verses 15 through 17 and this is where the story gets really good. Uh, Verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw the Lord, or when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Aha, right? Now the story becomes clear. Story one, the people rejecting the Lord, asking for a king. Story two, Saul goes out looking for donkeys. Story three, under all of this as the foundation and holding all of it up from the people's rejection to looking for the donkeys is a sovereign God who has been talking to Samuel and saying, I'm bringing to you a man that you're going to anoint to be the asked for king. That underneath all of this is the providence of God working all things, even the smallest details, to draw these three stories together and to begin to weave them into one narrative. These three verses, verses 15 through 17, are the key to this passage. Uh, I love the way one commentator says it. He says this, I call these verses an intrusion because they are. If you read the story through verse 14 and then go immediately to verse 18, you will find that the story connects perfectly, the narrative never missing a beat. So in one sense, verses 15 through 17 are not necessary for the flow of the narrative, only for understanding it. All of this common, ordinary stuff in verses three through 14 is not just the mundane happenings of life. It's not just another day on the life of the farm for Saul and his family. In all of it and behind all of it, there is a sovereign God directing every single thing to the accomplishment of his purposes. The Lord works in the details. The Lord works works in the details in every single situation. Now you hear that and we're reading in God's word and perhaps you think to yourself, well that's all well and fine, but surely this only applies to the big things that God is doing in life, right? Like surely only the things that God is doing on the world stage or that have an impact on redemptive history, uh, those are the only things that God is actively at work in the details of. Uh, Surely God's not at work in the details of my life. I don't think that's what the rest of scripture proclaims. For instance, Proverbs 20, 24 says, a man's steps are from the Lord. Romans 8, 28, he, God, works all things, all things together for good for those who love him. Ephesians 1, 11, God is described as him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Uh, Matthew 10.30, Jesus says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Psalm 34.15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear open to their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And then in Job 39.1, as God is reminding Job of who he is, he says, Job, I know everything and I see everything. I'm the one who's there when every single mountain goat gives birth. I know what's going on. I see it all. I know about it all. And I care about all of it. And you can be sure that I am working in all the details. The Lord exercises his sovereign providence in the most minute detail everywhere and always. This is a fancy way of saying that God is at work in your life down to the very details. Verses 15 through 17, I told you it gets good. Uh, Let's look at the substance of this intrusion. Verse 16, it says, you shall anoint him, Saul, to be prince over my people. Now this is interesting if you read commentaries on this passage, many have spilled a great deal of ink over the fact that it says you'll anoint him to be prince over my people and not king over my people. In Hebrew there's a word for king and there's a word for prince and the author intentionally chose to use the word prince because God and God only is the king of Israel and none can stand in his place. Uh, Amen, yes it preaches, but I don't know that that's the sentiment of the text. I think he has a different purpose and the big deal is rather that God is giving his people exactly what they asked for. He is giving to them a king and it's marking a massive transition in redemptive history. Uh, This text right here is where the monarchy and the kingdom and the kingship of Israel is established and this text has direct impact on your life and on my life as we sit here in this room. Because with the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, God is doing something way bigger. He is moving all of this towards the establishment of the monarchy so that he might orient his people so that they could understand what it looks like to live in a kingdom and what it looks like to have a king. You see, from this point on throughout the rest of scripture, the concept of kingdom becomes one of the main theological terms that's used to describe God's rule and reign over all history, over all people, for all time. Just for a moment, uh, let's fast forward to the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. I have a few verses on the screen. But we go all the way to Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 30. A woman named Mary is met by an angel and he says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
In the book of Matthew, John the baptizer appears on the scene and he proclaims, repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, after being baptized by John, begins his ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the reality that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again for sinners and that God will save anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus alone for their salvation is called in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 the good news or the gospel of the kingdom and finally at the end of the story in Revelation chapter 19 King Jesus is described as returning it says then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, many crowns and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty for on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Kingdom has always been a part of God's plan. And God has been working in all of the details to establish this idea and this understanding of kingdom so that we as his people might know and understand what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven and under the kingship of King Jesus. Back to our text in 1 Samuel chapter nine. God is using even his people's rejection to work all things according to the counsel of his will. And for us to know here this morning that a sovereign God is in control and he can even use the sinfulness and rejection of his people to accomplish his good and sovereign purposes should bring us nothing but hope and confidence. The Lord's work cannot be stopped. God's work cannot be stopped. His plans will not be thwarted. None can stand in his way. And he's using here through the rejection of his people, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel to begin to help his people understand something that is true about the kingdom and their king. Let's look at verse 16. Continues to say, and Saul, this king, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Uh, Let's not forget, in the midst of all that's happening here in all of this text, God's people back in chapter four were defeated by the Philistines. And so right now they're living under Philistine oppression and enslavement, just like in the book of Judges, because they were taken captive, they needed a deliverer, they needed a savior, they needed someone to step in and deliver them from the hand of their enemies. Yes, God's people reject him, and yet God responds to even their rejection with mercy. God responds even to his people's rejection with abundant mercy. He gives them the king that they asked for, 
and this king comes and delivers them from the hand of their enemies. In their rejection, God could have just cast them aside, right? He could have said, I'm done with you people. It started with a golden cow. Now you guys have been worshiping idols, the whole book of Judges, the whole thing, and now here, rejecting me as your king, I'm just done, I'm out. I give up on you. And yet the Lord is merciful, and he responds to his people's cry with mercy and with deliverance. The Lord works mercifully. The Lord is at work in the details, and the Lord works mercifully. It's not as if God were off in another corner of the world doing some other God things and said, okay, hold on a second, I gotta put all this stuff down because now I'll come over here and deal with you people and help you out. Uh, It's not like God is somehow forgetting that they're there. It's not as if somehow their cry has finally gotten God's attention. Uh, God knew the whole time. He saw what was going on with his people and yet he waited until his people recognized that they desperately needed him and that it would only be by crying out to him and asking for deliverance that he would step in and rescue them. It sounds like the gospel. Verse 17, we read that God reveals to Samuel, Saul is the one who he had been talking about. Remember, if we don't have verses 15 through 17, then we miss the fact that a sovereign God is at work in everything to bring about his exact purposes at his exact time for his glory and for his people's good. Now let's cruise through the rest of the story together and I think what you'll see is uh, God is working in all the details, God's plans cannot be stopped, and God is working mercifully in all of it. Let's pick up verses 18 through 21. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning, I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. Now as for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Samuel's like, okay, Saul, I get it. You're here because you're looking for donkeys. Don't worry about the donkeys. The whole thing has never been about the donkeys. The donkeys, they're back on the farm. They're eating in the stalls. No animals were hurt in the recording of this story. It's all good. We've got other fish to fry. He continues, verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited. We were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up a leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof up that I might send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. Uh, This is just as God had told Samuel and Samuel had told the people back in chapter eight, hey, you want a king? Let me tell you what that king is gonna be like. And so here Saul is, and he's already being treated as a king. Uh, He's set at the head of the table. 
He's given the finest portion. A bed is spread for him in the most comfortable place to sleep. And everyone's wondering, what's going on with this guy? And who is he? Get verse 27, please. And now as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I, make, may, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Saul now is being let in on the whole plan. Samuel tells him, hey, here's what this whole thing has been about. Here's why God has been working through all of these tiny details. Now, don't forget with me how insane this is for Saul. Like Saul left his daddy's farm looking for donkeys and now all of a sudden a strange man is pouring oil on his head and kissing him and saying, you are now the king. This is not what Saul set out to do and he's totally freaked out by all of this. We learn that here in just a moment. He tells him that not only are you gonna be king but the enemy that's fought you guys and held you under oppression, you're gonna be the one who delivers your entire nation from their oppression. And so, Saul hearing all of this is clearly freaked out and God, in his mercy and kindness, gives Saul some encouragement. He is going to continually, providentially work in the smallest details to demonstrate to Saul that Samuel is telling the truth and that the Lord will be with him. Let's see how the rest of the story continues. Verse two picks up. Uh, When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? He gives him this sign, right? You're gonna go and at a specific place, a specific number of people are gonna meet you and they're gonna say something specific to you. Verse three, then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats. I don't know how you carry three goats. Another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you shall accept from their hand. Again, a specific number of people at a specific place carrying specific things and giving a specific gift. Verses five through eight. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. 
time and time and time again, there are going to be all of these specific things that give evidence and proof that it is God who is at work in all of this, Saul, that Samuel is not just some crazy old man saying some crazy old things. He's being for real, that you are to be the king over Israel and save the people from the Philistines. He tells him that the spirit of God is going to come upon him, but then it's interesting. He says, and even after the spirit of God comes on you, go to Gilgal and wait. Wait for me, you see, because the power of God is not to be exercised outside of the will of God, the ways of God, and the word of God. And so go in the power of the Lord and yet wait for me and I'll instruct you all that you should do. The story ends, verses nine through 16, and then we'll close. Now when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart. Behold, all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over this son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, I went to go look for the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, well, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly, the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. The story ends oddly and anticlimactic just the way that it began. Uh, Saul had just had this incredible experience and Samuel has just anointed him to be the first king of Israel. He shows up and his uncle's like, hey, how was it? He's like, yeah, we ran into Saul. What'd he tell you? Uh, That we found the donkeys and it's all good. And we're done, right? And yet, this is often how life goes, isn't it? Uh, John Piper said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your lives and you may be aware of three of them. That God is providentially and sovereignly and always at work in the very minute details of your life. And then he goes on to say this, not only may you see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, but the part that you do see may make no sense at all. Uh, This is Saul. This is now Saul's uncle. This is the servant of Saul who was present and yet he was sent on his way and wasn't there when Samuel told Saul what was going on. This is the 30 people who were sitting down at the table and this stranger who's tall and handsome walks into the room and gets to sit at the head of the table and the whole time nobody has any idea what God is doing or what is happening in Saul's life and yet the whole time God is at work in the details. This story is chock full of God's sovereign hand at work and he is moving all things, even the slightest details to accomplish all his plans and purposes for Saul, for the nation of Israel, for the kingdom and ultimately for you and I. God may not be orchestrating all of the things in your life to make you the next king or president of the United States. In fact, he's probably not. But 
He is at work in all of the mundane things in your life. And the Lord is merciful as he is working. Even when his people reject him, he still hears their cry and delivers them from oppression. If you are in Christ, you can be absolutely certain of God's merciful working in your life. That from the moment that you came to Christ, you secured God's sovereign working in your life according to his mercy. That from that moment and through eternity, the only thing that you will ever experience is God's mercy. Saul is the first king of Israel. And yet we know that no earthly king will do. All earthly kings are a pointer to the true king, Jesus Christ, who is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who stands as the sovereign over your life. And if you are in Christ, then you can walk into whatever this week, whatever this month, whatever this year, whatever this life holds, and be sure and confident that it will be nothing but God's sovereign working in your life according to his mercy. You may not know it, you may not see it, and it might not make any sense to you whatsoever, but be assured. Life with God secures his sovereign working in all things according to his will. He works mercifully in your life and his work cannot be stopped. Father, As we come to you this morning, we come knowing that you are our sovereign king, ruling and reigning over every fraction and millisecond of our lives. God, we see it here in your word that even in the mundane things, even in the things that just seem to be the normal parts of life, you are at work in every single one of them. Father, our lives are filled with a lot of seemingly mundane things and it seems like day in and day out, always the same, never a change and yet in all of it, we know that your hand is at work. God, we thank you for uh, your word and for reminding us, God, that even in the midst of our sinfulness, our brokenness, our rejection, when we turn from you or rebel against you, even in the midst of that, God, you have been merciful, you are being merciful, and you will continue to pour out your mercy for those of us who have sought refuge in Christ. So Father, we know that you and you only are in charge. And that brings us great hope and great joy. And King Jesus, we know that you and you only are the king over all. And so we exalt you to the highest place in your name. Amen.